getting in the loop episode for two rules for the circular economy and setting system conditions for an abundance of flows with Ken Webster. Hi, I'm Katie Wellen, and join me each week as I talk with experts around the globe about circular economy. You'll find out what's being done to make it a reality, and if it can really solve the problems it promises. It's time for Getting in the Loop. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited to have Ken Webster on the show today. For those of you who don't know Ken, he is a leading expert on the circular economy and author of the book, The Circular Economy, A Wealth of Flows. From 2012 to 2018, he was head of innovation at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where he remains an associate, and now holds positions at both the University of Exeter in the UK and Linköping University in Sweden. In today's episode, we talk about how his interest in the ideas behind circular economy emerged, what has surprised him the most about the recent surge of interest, and his vision for the future. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to ask you a question. What do you think of the Getting in the Loop podcast so far? Let me know after this episode by sending me an email at katie@inthelooppgames.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I might include your thoughts on an upcoming episode. Now on to the show. So Ken, to start us off, could you say a few words on how your interest in circular economy came about? <laughs> That's always a really tough question because it involves a bit of history. My background sort of education and economics. And I became, when I was, I was doing some work at Manchester University, and somebody came along and said, um, it was somebody from WWF, would, would you do a bit of research for us in your department about how we educate for economics and environment? So I got into that a bit there because it was just a challenge for a, a university. But then as I went on over more years, I realized that the environment movement as such, or even the social justice one, it didn't deal with the economy very well. It sort of sort of said, well, yeah, you regulate that. You know, the economy was just about, well, you need to regulate the bad bits. And I thought that was a, A, they didn't really understand economics. Somebody has said that um, economics is about like the ghost in Hamlet in the Shakespeare play. It shows up, but nobody really knows what to do about it. You don't know what its role is. And I was always more concerned to get discussion of economics more solidly in these educational work. And then I realized a lot of sustainability, because I was into that um, that whole thing by then, a lot of sustainability had ended up being very much either on the social justice side or the environmental problems. And economics was the business, was the bad, yeah, that was the enemy, really. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, hang on, you've got to make all three work properly. There's no point in being great on environment and social and just saying, well, economy will just have to do what we say in that sort of naive sense isn't there a positive role so I got more involved with those people who were talking about design and business models I mentioned them several times with Michael Michael Browngart Emery Lovins Janine Benius those sorts of people Thomas Lyle they're often architects Walter Starhill he's an architect too originally these are designers mm-hmm. I was became interested in people in design who were trying to design a system that went from do less harm to a positive cycle. And that's when I began to shift and think, hey, it's about 
designing the system to work. And I'd been deeply interested in systems thinking, you know, this the idea of nonlinear systems and how most real world systems are like that. So I was more interested in how, how progress could be made, which did include uh, uh, business and, and, and it included building a narrative over time and being patient about that and having a framing of mm -hmm. it that might be progressive. So I got into it in that way. I'm, I'm a purveyor of secondhand ideas. I'm not shy of that. I just put things together from other people and try to frame it well. And that suited then my work as I moved into the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Yeah. Because that was the framework they found exciting. Ellen was very keen on having a positive uh, approach. Mm -hmm. And we revived the term circular economy. We picked it out if it was in China and other places. We thought it was just the one to give a boost to. So um, we helped energize that phrase again. Yeah. You know, these things come in waves. So that's that's my background, really. I'm a purveyor of second-hand ideas, which I find interesting. That's my downside. I get bored if it's not interesting. <laughs> and, you know, I don't love the detail I love the connections yeah. you're a true designer well I pretend to be but you know <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I wanted to get your your key takeaways from the last you know eight more than yeah. eight years of this growing interest yeah. well the first thing to say is that I'm I'm obviously surprised and delighted that so many people find it so interesting when a lot of us have been working on this for quite a time and it never really caught in the way that it has. And I think, yes, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation really helped spring that off, but they they did that at just the right time. And, and they didn't plan this. What had happened was you'd had the big 2008-9 crash, financial crash. Uh, you had a spike because China was really pumping its system full of credit to get a compensatory approach uh, you know they wanted activity to keep happening if they couldn't sell abroad so easily so that pushed up commodity prices There's a lot of speculation in that you only have to look at the graphs so you've got this panic going on oh the economy's not working oh there's the resources are going to get short you've got the continuing thing about carbon and climate change going on and the key thing is you've got digital suddenly well, it really began to, to look like an important thing, you know, because the, the first sort of smartphone was only about 2007, I think, something like that. But you've got digital plus the problems of the economy in the world. You've got China on the go, uh, pollution problems. Uh, you've got all of these things come together and people go, oh, what? somebody's got to do something about this. And circular economy, because it's got economy in it, rather than saying, I don't know, whatever word you want, sounds more serious, it's got circular economy in it. Uh, people thought, and it's got a business angle to it because you can do different things, you know, it's exciting. So I mm -hmm. think it surprised me how fast it did move, but there was a considerable, considerable effort at the time to try and frame this as a more uh, positive, you know, it was taken from cradle to cradle and other things about a net positive approach so that it's mm -hmm. not do less harm, it's, it's, it works in the other way. So that caught people's attention, I think, because it wasn't based around guilt and the individual. 
It was about, okay, we can design this differently. We can take a different metaphor group. We can build on this. And digital means we can look at the business models again. And boy, we need to do something, uh, but we need it to be positively framed. Now, all of these things did come together at the beginning of you know, 2010, 12, and, that, and it gave it a big, a big push. And so I always say it's digital meets uh, business models meets design in, in, in many ways with positive spin-offs for the other areas. So, okay, was I, uh, was I surprised? Yes, about how quickly it took off. But when you look at it, the frame is exactly what uh, organizations want to hear because it's certainly, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very modernist approach, if you like. Uh, it's sort of, it, it wants to deal with the problem of materials. It doesn't say we're going to deal with everything at one time. So it makes it easy to handle that way. It, it, it begs some questions as other people have raised many times. Places like the EU, they were keen on things like they were worried about raw materials coming and going and whether there would be the right amount and who owned them. So it, it, got, it got institutional buy-in and big businesses could see things in it as well. And of course, you, you add in, I think the main elements were that systems thinking approach, which was, is coming along. That's how real world systems work. It's systemic and positive in order orientation. It built on the work of all of these uh, other writers, Brown, uh, Grant, Madonna, Lovins, Janine Benyus, Gunter Powell, etc. And it arrived at the right time in history. So it's hard to say what did the most good in all of that, but together it certainly created something. And then you've got um, the growing awareness, as you know, we saw with Blue Planet and, and other things about plastics and materials. There is a sense that, and never mind the, the big upsets in terms of climate variation we've been having recently, people more and more are getting the idea that something has to be done really very differently, but it still has to work with, with business and with the economy. So it's, um, it's surprising in the way it's moved so quickly, but thank heavens it, it has in a way. The problem is more how to keep the, the focus on it's a way of thinking. It's about system conditions, and there's a spin-off for business. What tends to happen, people go, what can I do in my business to get a bit more revenue and also cut down the resource use? Which mm-hmm. is fine, but without the context, it's like having the middle bit out of a sandwich. You know, it's okay, but usually your mum or your dad or whoever tells you not to do that. You should eat the whole thing. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. Otherwise, it's just bacon or tofu or whatever you're into. And, and I think that's the big challenge in a way that people think, oh, we can just get on with them um, doing business as usual. We'll do something with the materials. We'll make a bit more revenue and we'll cut down some resource use, which is, again, as Elliot said, that's not what I meant at all. Uh, so that that's the big challenge, if you like, is um, keeping the eye on the systems thing. It won't work in the end without a shift of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do we how do we do that going going forward? Do you have good examples of how that's being being done already? Well, well no, <laughs> <laughs> not good examples because people, you see, it's an example. Or, you're asking it an odd thing in a way. Okay, I'll, I'll put it this way because people say, "Oh, well, show me an example." People tend to get into this sort of supermarket framework 
which is, okay, circular economy, I get it. Where can I get it off the shelf? Where can I, you know, I understand it. Now, where can I buy it from the shelf and it will be okay? Now, it's mm -hmm. really a narrative. It's a story about how we produce and consume. It's a story about relationships between people, resources, you know, and so on and so on. Now, if you go back a bit in history, just to the end of the Second World War, we decided after a terrible war that what we really wanted to do was make sure employment stayed high. We could use government expenditure to make sure there wasn't any lack of demand. And um, that worked very well for 30 years in largely national economies. We'll keep infrastructure cheap, free healthcare cheap, cheap housing and all the rest of it. That was an economic narrative about how we do things. But it, it really pushed down on finance. It, it, finance was highly controlled in that period. And they ended up mm -hmm. with inflation and a lot of firms not wanting to invest because inflation meant they weren't really making any money. But for 30 or 40 years, another story had been developing in the wings. And it was ready to go by the end of the 70s. And that was that more, we, we can do this, we can get jobs and employment by letting finance free, limiting government, and putting all of the energy into a more market-orientated thing. Now, that then took over for 30, 40 years until 2008. And we're now in a period where people don't quite know what to think. But, yeah. <laughs> but I think circular economy is part of another story about the economy, which is beginning to emerge, right? Yeah. And that's when, I, when people say, can you show me how it works? Well, I could say we could talk about the framework for thinking. We could talk about enabling conditions. We could talk about maybe basic income. We can talk about different scales. The story which brings it all together is yet to be written. Maybe you can write it, Katie. But, yeah. you know, really, it's a narrative. It's about how do we make sense of where we are now? And that is never usually done by examples because this switch to uh, the more financial orientated, market orientated thing was a was a sophisticated, coherent set of stories about how things would work differently. And people believed it. Harari, you know that writer, uh, Yuval Harari, the, the Israeli academic, he's always said that it's the, the story, the social story that is most convincing. It doesn't have to be true. It has to be a fiction we can live with. So at the end of the 70s, we got fed up of conflict between labor and the government and businesses and inflation. And in Britain, there was something called a three-day three, three day week. You know, the economy was seemed like it was crumbling. And so people wanted an alternative story they could try out. Mm -hmm. So when you say, can you give me a good example, as though we pick it up from examples, I would ask you and others to say, what's your new story? What's the story that's more convincing than the story we've got now? Then I think we'll see other things falling into place. That's what, that's what I say. I know you can pick up clues. Oh, look what this. But you only pick up clues. You don't create a narrative that way. Uh, if I put it in two lines, I like this. I got this from, uh, from talking to a couple of people. The first rule in circular economy is don't kill your customer. In other words, don't make it toxic. But the second rule is don't kill their custom. In other words, ah. businesses need customers. And if the economy you're doing doesn't make sure they have income to buy well-designed products and services, what's the point? Just not killing them with toxics. 
doesn't answer that other question about, well, don't poison them, but don't kill their ability to be a customer. Yeah. So yeah. I quite like those two things together because that, that, that tells me it's more than just about that materials flow. It's about humans as customers for enterprise and business. They, they need income. Where are they going to get it? You've got to answer that as well as, is that poisonous? Is that toxic? Is that harmful? Yeah. I think sometimes we forget about the social aspect of that. But um, when, you know, like at least researchers like talking about a circular economy, really thinking about it just as like the stocks and flows and trying to loop that, you know. Um, and when you were talking, I was reminded of the TED Talk by Simon, I think, Sinek, who talks about start with why. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's like the purpose. So why, why are yeah. we doing this? What is the goal? Like, you know, it goes like, why, how, what? So like, actually the going to the detail is like the last yeah. part yeah. of it. Because <laughs> what you're doing, and if you do it the other way is you've assumed the purpose. You've assumed that yeah. the way we do it now is just fine. You just need to tweak it up a bit. In other words, no relationships really change. You just get technically more efficient which is, as he pointed out and you point out, exactly the wrong way to do it. You won't attract people if you don't answer that question first. Why? Why are we doing it? How should we do it? And then, you know, what is it that we need to do? Mm, yeah. Good. Yeah. I like that. I was thinking, because you talk about leaky loops and about, like, who who yeah. benefits. And I think in the mm. diff. Uh, the Disruptive Innovation Festival uh, video from 2018, you were talking about like the cherry blossom tree and when the leaves yeah. fall, they don't benefit just the tree they came from. So yeah. I see this could be a, a challenge. Like how do we control or not, maybe not control, but how do we ensure like the right system conditions that it's just benefiting, not just for like one firm, for example, but also for other firms going back to that sort of cherry blossom yeah, tree. Well- well, it, it's not cherry blossom tree. It's a cherry tree, yeah. which is in blossom. And it's the old Michael Browngout story about all of that blossom is there in spring. And it's not all needed. Most of it's inverted commas waste. But of course, it isn't. And that allows it to be, uh, if you like, generous. And this is what Janine Benyus says all the time. Be generous. Because if you like, if you feed the forest, not just the tree, I've used that one. Uh, the trees are fed by feeding the forest uh it's 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 how things fit in a system and you can't just say we're not going to play with the system anymore we're going to stand separate as though it was last person standing probably a man last man standing because they've got the ego to do that uh and then we'll fail they it's it's it is a perspective now let's look at the game of football the football game is endlessly interesting apparently <laughs> Apparently it is. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either, you know, why, why it's that interesting. <laughs> but it only has very few rules, relatively speaking. It's got all of this variety, but very few rules. And everybody knows what the rules are, and they just get on with having a great time uh, in the game uh, with all its variety, with its winners and losers and uh, champions and, uh, you know, people who just aren't very good at it. And now that's the thing we ought to be looking for. It's not controlling it. Mm-hmm. It's, you mentioned it. It's getting the system conditions that would enable waste is food, enable regenerative uh, activities, would enable earning profits, in, 
you know, all of these things at the same time. At the moment, it's more like, let's take a bunch of nature and enclose it. Now that we control it, we can extract value from that. And since it was a free gift, we're not really going to pay for that. And we're not going to pay for the impact that we have on the broader system, uh, which is that's an, a movement towards what's called what well, it's called enclosure, enclosure of the commons. Well, that's been going on for hundreds of years in different ways. Um, is to you know to capture oh in Britain there was there had to be a charter of the forests in 1217 now that's 800 years ago trying to make it possible or to maintain the rights of peasantry and the rest of it to go into woodlands and get dead wood you know feed uh, acorns to the pigs and things like this it wasn't about the big trees which the landowner owned it was about getting a living as well mm-hmm. and that is part of that conflict between um, if you like, enclosing a resource and enabling people to get a living from it as well. You know, where is the boundary? Now, with things like very sophisticated intellectual property, with dominant web platforms and, and so on, you tend to have this enclosure of uh, data, you, enclosure of other forms of commons. Now, this is part of a very long dialogue if you like backwards and forwards now it seems that you can have a very productive economy if it circulates but not so productive economy if it's extractive and this is uh, Doug Roshkoff talks about it a lot he says we need an economy which circulates income and wealth not one that extracts it because it isn't fed back in it's the (laughs) it's the circularity principle it's like saying all of the nutrients will go into the tree and it doesn't matter if there's nothing else there for anything else. You just have to wait 200 years for the tree to die. Then you can have the nutrients back. So you get a very strong intuitive sense that you want to circulate rather than extract. Yeah. And I think that's helpful. You can't have a circular economy, which is extractive. Well, you could technically. <laughs> that's interesting. But it would be a circular economy owned by very few players. Yeah who would uh, control ownership and access of, of all significant uh, assets. And uh, people would have to pay to get those. Now, whether it was um, cheap and cheap forever, or whether it started cheap and got more expensive, there is a lot of um, debate about that. There's not a great record of, of monopolies or oligopolies doing great deals for the customer. Yeah. And I guess... Sorry, that was a long ramble. No, no, but I guess that's kind of what I was was getting at was thinking you know how do you see like the type of circulation that people are talking about how do you see it getting picked up in practice is it this first type that you were explaining or this sort of second type well there is a nice way out of that because if you understand uh, these types of systems these types of systems are all fractal you know let's just take these blood circulation system there's the big channels the heart arteries blah blah And there's the masses of kilometers or miles of capillaries, which do all the exchange stuff. Now, what can we learn from that? Because it seems that most of these sorts of systems have the similar structure. They're they're fractal and they have an element of it, which is efficiency, which is the big pipes. And there's an element of it, which is about exchange. And uh, writers like Sally Gurner and whatever have talked about the flow element or the big flow which is towards efficiency in the big pipes Mm -hmm. and 
the resilient exchange through many nodes and networks in, in, in the capillary things. So it might say, and cities look like this too. Jeffrey West has written extensively about scale and cities, and they're very self-similar all over Europe, for example, are cities. So what do we have here? What's the insight? Well, it might be you require some goods which probably come from a long way off or for where large scale really is beneficial. There's no denying economies of scale work. So the big flows, they would be having few firms and it would lower the cost of access and ownership. Okay, but what about the other side? This is the clever thing in a way from the theory. The theory says that actually you can't run a system just on efficiency. Mm -hmm. You have to reach all of the people in the system. You know, if it's a city, it's got to be all citizens that have to be reached. But all citizens are not just dumb consumers waiting to have a, a sliced loaf thrown at them from a, a from a supermarket. Traditionally, people are producers as well as consumers, mm -hmm. and they're citizens as well as, well, I don't know, shoppers. So traditionally, uh, in these cities and in all of these systems, it's the exchange function, which is where the action really happens. Yeah. If your blood doesn't go to every cell, well, it's, it's okay for a short while, but eventually things are going to go badly wrong. So you need, if you like, the big flows with the efficient firms, but you need the ability to exchange and cascade materials and energy through a very resilient network. You know, if you bruise your hand, you're not going to die from that usually. Mm -hmm. It's going to reroute and then repair. Now, if I did that to my artery, it's, um, well, it's a very short interview. Uh, <laughs> in a sense, it's bye-bye, Katie. <laughs> I hope you have a nice life. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's efficient, but it's brittle. And so if you have these two elements are part of every complete system, it might say, well, actually, we need two sets of policies. Mm. The ones we tend to use now, which is about the big flows, lowering the cost of access and ownership. But Gunter Pauli and others have often talked, you know, the blue economy thing. He's talked about adding value with what we have. Multiple uh, cash flows. And he's talking about economies of scope, they're called, economies of diversity. It's, it means that you don't focus and go to scale in a big way, that you, it might be more that it's quite placed specific it's with materials that are within a, a limited range say the city and it's about exchange in a number of ways uh it, it you might have multiple uh cash flows say you're a coffee shop or whatever you've got the coffee grounds you've got the the different inputs and outputs and you've also got the relationships with the customers but if you go bust in a little coffee shop nobody really cares because you can go down the road and find another one mm -hmm. it's got a resilience built in so what would it mean in terms of policy well, first of all, you've decided you need both. You need the big firms and you need the other ones, the small ones in their hundreds of thousands. So the policies on one side we've discussed are much like lowering the cost of access and ownership. What are the policies on the other side? Well, if you think that all of these firms are marginal, they don't have much capital. They just don't. Yeah. They're marginal. Uh, there's lots of materials they can make use of that are flowing around and in the city if they're given a chance. And that's that question of if they're given a chance. Yeah. It would point to the fact that in order to be more directly exchanging with each other, they have to have low cost and usable infrastructure. 
Now that infrastructure is already familiar and it's popping up all over the place, Barcelona, Amsterdam. It includes things like community kitchens, it includes maker labs, it includes temporary material storage. It might include new marketplaces, either online or physically. Mm-hmm. So the key to, to, to firms which don't have capital is a policy which encourages, encourages economies of scope, which is exchange in a multitude of ways. And I always use the example of Berlin after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. East Berlin particularly was really cheap. So lots of creative types and uh, enterprising types and arty types it took over the cheap properties in the East Berlin and it became a community of very interesting and innovative activity until prices went up over time. So it may be that the policy to enable these cascaded economies of scope are low-cost infrastructure, deliberate infrastructure, not to say we will make that do this with it. It's more, we will put some of this infrastructure in place. You have a go at it. Mm-hmm. You do things. And if it's really good, we'll add in a bit more. Because you see, public sector is infected with this idea. You don't give people any money until you can prove the output. Well, that's not how, you don't study anthills like that. <laughs> you don't say, I want you termites to do exactly what you've signed up for. What you do is you make some, if you like, say it's a, uh, you're trying to encourage ant, ant hills. You make some space available, make sure it's reasonably well drained, make sure there's a food source around, and then you say, go on, ants, have a go. And if they're really successful, they have a great ant hill. And if they're not, well, you know, it didn't work. And, and that's that other part of the acceptance. When you're working on small scales with highly resilient but flexible businesses, you don't have to program the output. You have to program in the opportunities which they might have to do creative things. That's how I see it. Anyway, go on. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it, there's a lot from hearing you talk about this. There's a lot of opportunity for innovation and entrepreneurship and creativeness. Like with entrepreneurship, you, you, you know, quickly pivot all the time. So it's, mm. it's kind of like this enabling conditions. If you have mm. sort of some sort of food source and some, some boundaries that you're kind of working in and then all of a sudden you know you just can you know try something see it what works what doesn't work quickly pivot to something else yeah and find the collaborators you need to do that yeah and and oddly this is i've been talking about physical infrastructure or you know platform cooperatives cheap cheap exchange software if you like or software that enables exchange but don't forget there might be another element that's that's creeping up on on the horizon now which is to say these entrepreneurs need time and space to be able to get their thinking together and collaborate with people and try things and this is one of the reasons why many people are quite keen on a basic dividend or a basic income because it says okay you're fairly into your ideas but because you don't have any capital and because if you get it wrong in three months you'll be on the street yeah how much how much are you going to take that risk it's okay if mummy and daddy have given you ten thousand euros to give it a go but if mummy and daddy don't have ten thousand euros you are really walking on the edge and yet you might be a, a young very vibrant clever group of people or person and a group of people and you just need more time to find out what fits as you say you need time to pivot and alter 
and get creative. Mm -hmm. So some people say part of that infrastructure for a more resilient city is something like a basic dividend or a basic income, because you know that you know plenty of arguments around that. But what I think is interesting from circular economy point of view is to say, stop just talking about a bunch of plastics or a few components and trying to make that into a fancy story you're trying to describe a different way of looking at how the system works in terms of products components materials entrepreneurship and business you're describing a different ecosystem if you will forgive the use of the word i think in a proper sense now mm -hmm. that it is an ecosystem you're trying to help create you're not saying let's find a way of going to scale and how do we use efficiency that's the story of only one side of the circular economy. That's for those big firms that do some of the big flows. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think iPhones are going to be made locally in Ghent, for instance, or something like that. <laughs> that would be interesting to see. <laughs> Let them try, you know, yeah. that would be good. So I have that view that we have both of these elements in both of these approaches, both the efficiency and the effectiveness. That's in the theory. We have to be able to have different policies to structure and support, whether it's the periphery or whether it's the core. And because they've got different functions, one is exchange and one is flow, that's, that's quite logical to me. It's not a, a difficulty, but it's not where the thinking has gone so far. It's gone on to saying, you're a firm, make yourself circular. Mm -hmm. so it's make, how do we make the system circular and how would you fit? Is the, is the real question, you see, because we tend to look at things individual out rather than saying, well, let's look system and in. Yeah, I'm trying to process all, <laughs> process all of this. <laughs> no, but I, I'm thinking also from my own research as well, like was looking at like some SMEs, they're, they're taking these, these leaks in the system and they're trying to make, you know, loops yeah. from that. And as you've said, like how, how policy could help enable them is very different than these larger firms that, yeah, yeah. so. It, it, indeed, it is very different, but it, it's something to be, then you don't get a conflict in a way. You say, look, for the big firms, we help them with lowering cost of access and ownership, but they can do it a lot themselves because they can invest in it. For the other firms, they need a platform on which to build on and they work differently. They're never going to be big firms. They're going to spread by replication, not by scale which is another thing from living systems because living systems grow by uh, cells splitting. Yeah. Uh, they don't, they don't say I can imagine a great big tree. Let me be a tree. No, it's lots of cells. So this is the, the I think a parallel useful parallel with cities and firms. Yeah. So don't cry. Don't cry for the coffee shop that goes bust. Just wonder whether there's enough opportunity for different sorts of businesses to pop up. I think we just have to stop talking only about the big flows. Yeah, and looking at the exchange function. As function as well. So we have to have both. And they do, this is how real world systems are. Yeah. They're fractal. You know, it's not as though, oh, we've just invented that. It's saying, look, we've been using living system analogies quite a lot in circular economy for decades. So let's just follow it to where it leads. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I think this is, I'm reminded also from just the interviews that I have been doing with other people as well, just, it keeps reminding me about, it's like global and local and the connection between the two of them. Big scale and small scale. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's a scale question. Very often it's a question of scale and then the policies and activities that happen because of scale and function, which is what I'm bringing in here. Yeah. So uh, in that sort of economy we described there, there would be much more circulation if you like, because there's so many more businesses doing things at a small scale. They aren't able to extract and accumulate because they don't have any market power. You see. Whereas on the other side, with the big firms that do extract, that's what regulation is for, to say, can we take a share of that, please? Because some of it's not, not really competitive. It's uh, So you should pay a little bit. And, and, and you don't and treat everybody with the same rules. And then you're happy with uh, with profit and returns, it's just about making sure the system is mostly circulatory with enough rewards to make it interesting for those who are in there. Yeah. No, that's the that's the type of system that gets me excited. So that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe this is a, a, a good transition to the final question that I ask all of the interview guests about the mm. type of the in the loop event card they would create. So what kind of event would you potentially create or what kind of focus of an event would you want to create? Well, I mentioned it once, but I think one of the keys to so much of this change is a basic dividend. Okay. Yeah. You know, what, what, what would that do if everybody say in Europe or whatever had a basic dividend, which was their share of the commons, if you like, their share of the benefit that's come out of data, out of, materials and everything and the infrastructure we have you know what would that do and uh, you might say well it doesn't do anything because we're only talking about uh, other firms and and i don't know what it what it might do it might not be shocking enough it's sort of oh well that's nice (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's in a way it's a subtly disruptive event Mm -hmm. if that happened i think you get a huge uh, flowing through of creativity uh, people and it would have a uh, people would approach things differently in terms of sometimes we are because we're stressed we just dis- we do distraction activities I want to buy something new I want to do something different I want to go shopping whereas if they were more settled and calm because they had that security in their income they might go oh yeah I, I really they, they think differently about it so that's why I don't think it really suits your game because it's not immediately disruptive yeah. enough but that's what I would answer because I think so much will depend upon feeding the money back into the base to enable people to feel reassured and calmer and be able to make better choices about what they want to get involved in. It would be very interesting to think about something like that. And maybe that is some, that is part of the this, this story about changing the, yeah, the system. It might be. It yeah. Might be. yeah. But it's where you want to draw the boundaries. And I know you game a bit and it probably wouldn't fit so much there. Yeah, but the next the, the next iteration. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, fan, it's a fantastic thing, and I'd love to work together on... I'm interested in gaming and in ways of prompting people to think. That's why I was always interested in your your work. Yeah. But, you know, it's how do you get people to think differently, and a, a gaming is one way to do it. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your experiences and where can listeners go to learn more about you and the topics we discussed. Well, my pleasure, Katie.
most people know I have my book, uh, Circular Economy, Wealth and Flows. Unfortunately, it's still a little bit expensive, but you can get it cheap on Kindle. That's, that's one thing. Uh, I'm writing a new book, uh, so there will be something on that later this, this year. Exciting. But um, I would always point to some of the, not me, I would point to some of the people I found most impressive. And if you can, uh, it's always very controversial. If you can watch some of the recent videos from Gunter Pauli, he's very much into enterprise networks. Um, that's quite, he's quite controversial and provoking, but that's his point. I think he's trying to help us learn. He's not trying to make us friends, you know, and, that's, and I think that's an important difference. He has the confidence in the way he thinks about it that makes it very interesting. So if you bounce into the, the later Gunter Pauli things, you will have your brain slightly rearranged, even if it's to the extent that you now know what you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would go to there. I would go to there for fun. And um, the other thing I would do is always pick up on some of the things that um, that Bill McDonough and Michael Browngart do. Uh, and that's not quite my last thing. There's a very interesting book just come out called A Finer Future from Hunter Lovins, uh, Anders Vickman, uh, Kate Rayworth did the introduction. That's a very, and uh, Stuart Wallace and John Fullerton. It's a very fine book covering most of these bigger issues around, you know, for them, circular economy is part of, of looking at the world differently with this lens of a more systems perspective. It's their way of summarizing all of that. So it's called A Finer Future. Uh, it's fairly easy to track down. Um, so I would read that if you wanted to get a big picture sense of where some of the thinking is. That's all for today's episode. For show notes and links to resources mentioned in today's episode, head over to our website, gettingintheloopodcast.com. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our mailing list so that you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week.